Over the past seven years of publishing this podcast, it's pretty rare that we bring back a guest for a second visit. And guests that have been back three times, I, I could be wrong, but by my count, I think that's only happened twice. So today's episode makes it three. Hi, I'm Rob Marsh, one of the founders of the Copywriter Club. And on today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, my co-founder Kira Hug and I interviewed copywriter and founder of Case Study Buddy, Joel Kletke. To catch up on what he's been doing for the past couple of years, Joel has gone from being a top performing in-demand copywriter to being the founder of a million dollar business. And in our discussion, he shared some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. But first, this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground. That's the membership for copywriters and content writers. It's where you can find the training, coaching, copy reviews, and community that you need to build a successful copywriting business. To learn more, go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU. Now let's jump into our interview with Joel. All right, so Joel, I'm not gonna ask you how you ended up as a copywriter because we already covered that. And episode, Rob, which episode? I know you know. 21 is the first time and maybe like 107, I think, is the second time. It's been a while though. It's been a while since we chatted on the podcast. Yeah. it's. I like these, like, it's almost like a snapshot in time, like journal entry to go back and listen to, <laughs> you know, myself on, How on some of these things. life was back in episode 107 so or fun. 21 or, yeah. Well, going back to 21, I think that was the one I was listening to and reading the transcript from. That's when you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's when you were just starting case study buddy, right? That was the origin of it when you were getting into case studies or was that 107? I think it was even before that. Yeah, it was well, before that. We talked about it. We were introducing it you had that business running at that time yeah like technically case study buddy is almost eight years old um it was off the side of our desks initially um and then right before the pandemic we kind of pivoted to focus full-time on that so that became kind of you know the, a big transition point um and then it's continued to be the full-time focus since since then so we've only really been you know two years maybe three now wow. um you know full-time pushing this thing Okay, well, let's go back then to before pandemic when you went all in. I'm just curious, like what what triggered that decision for you and your business partner to go all in on this business? I think there were a, a whole bunch of different factors. I think you know at the time the grass is always greener um, in, in life in general. You know, like you always want to be doing that new thing. Um, the headspace I was in at that moment was I had done the freelance thing and I'd done it well. Um, graduated to basically being in a position of consulting for some some pretty great brands, some some really great projects. You you get to the point that you are now making what your heroes made. Um, you know, I remember listening to Joanna Weeb talk about charging ten thousand dollars for a landing page and thinking, that's so outlandish. That's like and then I got there. Um and at that point I I was kind of hitting the ceiling. I felt like I was hitting the ceiling of my potential. I I just wanted to keep growing. I wanted a change. I was finding when I was working on projects, I was going through this weird anxiety almost of like, now that I'm on this level, I have to keep delivering at this level. I have to keep being, you know, this person in this way. Um, and so, you know, I still have a lot of demand. I still have a lot of work. It wasn't like I was forced into a pivot, but it was kind of like, in the meantime, we have this other thing going on on this, you know, off the side of our desks that is, growing under its own steam. It, it had kind of gone from, you know, $17,000 in its first year, very, very part-time to, you know, then maybe like 38. And then you had this big jump up to 80. And then all of a sudden you're 200 and then you're 800. And now you're approaching a million. And meanwhile, you haven't really spent full-time energy or effort. So you start to wonder, you know, what could this thing be if we really, devoted when i say we i'm talking about myself and for those who don't know there's a partner in the business named jen who i used to work with agency side um and and then we we teamed up on on this thing so it was growing a lot and it kind of looked like hey this is an opportunity to maybe build something that might outlast me uh it's a it's a chance to grow in new and different ways to build a team to uh, build a process to move out of the craft per se and into the business side of, of business. Um, 
And so it was that combination of lots of potential growth alongside this desire to keep learning and keep growing myself that just made it seem like, yeah, now is, you know, we, we got to strike while the iron is hot. And, and so we did. So yeah, we're, we're not going to talk about every piece of your journey, Joel, but just looking back, I'm curious, you know, over the past couple of years, what would you do differently to build, if you're going to build the same business that you've built right now, are there things that you would do differently that you didn't do the first time that might impact like where you are today? Yeah, I think I had in some senses before I get into like the most present, what I do differently. In, in some senses, I had a test balloon because I, when I was doing business casual full time, I tried to build a team and it went miserably. Uh, you know, I, I focused so much on the profit side of it and the potential for that that I overlooked like the people side of it and the process side of it, especially in like focusing on making it scalable from the beginning. Um, which, you know, I didn't make the exact same mistakes with case study buddy, but there are certainly things that, you know, I, in retrospect or in hindsight, it's, it's easy to see where you might've deviated. So one of those things is like, I was petrified of the whole idea of hiring and like full-time, like, how do you know when you can bring someone in and like, isn't there a lot of paperwork and like the government and, you know, like that whole notion, even though it wasn't that complicated in retrospect, it, it kept me back from, you know, making some of those decisions. Um, and so for a long time, um, you know, we, we held off on bringing other people in outside of pure production roles until we absolutely needed to. Um, so for example, one of our first, not staff, uh, but more of like a full-time retainer was a, a gal named Morgan on the projects and operations side of things. And the difference that made, when I talk about that jump from like 200 to like 800, that was the introduction of Morgan and operationalizing the process and having someone whose full-time job was the process. I think when you're so used to coming from a freelance thing where the work is the process and it's just you, you don't realize how quickly stuff breaks and needs to be reinvented and how quickly that becomes a full-time focus um, till, you, till you're in the thick of it. So we held off on that just too long. And once we had someone in that seat, the growth just exploded and the ability to focus elsewhere was colossal. So I, I would have brought an operations person in much, much earlier. Uh, I think by the same token, one of the lessons we're learning now years later, um, case studies, especially customer stories, are such a variable product and timeline. And namely because there's so many stakeholders inherent in it. There's you and your team, there's your client, there's your client's customer. And then within there, there can be lots of legal PR. And so, you know, in the beginning, I really looked at this as like a productized business, like set a price, buy a thing, it's this much for a case study. And that worked until it really, really didn't work. Um, because now when you start to hire these fixed full-time staff, you're incurring overhead all of the time, whether or not you can execute on that work or not. If a project hits pause and you've only billed $3,000 for it, every month that holds in pause, you're paying somebody to chase up on it and your margin gets eliminated. So I think, you know, I, I would have looked and tried to be more in tune with how the decisions we'd made around the underlying model of the business were influencing the business. But when you're growing, everything seems like it's going great. Like, well, we're growing. How could anything be wrong? And, and you kind of don't realize until you take a really close look like, hey, there's some things we really need to address here. I think one other thing I would mention, you know, it's like the cliche. You hear a lot of people talking about um, hire, hiring slow, firing fast. Um, and I'm a people pleaser, right? I, I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so you all, you know, I want people to win. You want every hire you make to work out. You want to believe that you made the right call. You want to believe that everyone can succeed and thrive and, and will find their footing. But something that I've learned now over the course of hiring both contractors and staff is that's you can do everything right in the hiring process and it can still not work out. And there have been situations where out of a desire uh, to give people a chance or to not rock the boat or for any 
excuse really. There have been people that we held on to too long to the point it was not good for them. It was not good for us. It was not good for the team. And nobody's, none of these were bad people. They're, they're all great people, just not great fits. And I think one of the lessons I learned is that I used to always view letting someone go uh, as a, just this like egregious, you know, tense event when in reality, you know, maybe this is just, clever woo woo framing. I don't know, but like if they're not thriving there, then you keeping them there is preventing them from being in a place that they really can from their next chapter. And while there may be pain in the moment for both sides, you, you, there is a net benefit to everyone being able to move on. So, I mean, those are some of the hundreds, honestly, of of lessons, things I would have done differently. I, I would have been quicker, especially to move on from people that just were not clearly were not working out even if you really really like them and 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 wanted them to um that's a lesson that you you for me anyways you don't learn until you've had to make that call and felt the immediate relief you're still mm-hmm. sad you're still obviously the situation you're not happy about it but the immediate weight off your shoulders the minute that call is done and it's like, now we can begin again. And I hope those people felt too. Now I can begin again and, and find something that's better for me. So those are some of the myriad things I, I continue to learn. Yeah. So I guess this is similar to Rob's question. Um, but what, knowing everything you know now, all the wisdom you bring to business. So going back Let's say you didn't have case study buddy and you get your copywriting business back up and running. What would you do differently in that business with everything that you know now? It's a, I mean, it's a lesson I've talked about before, right? When you're coming in, I think I loved writing and I wanted to write. I never saw a business case in it till I did. And, and then it was my job. And so, you know, I, for so long, I focused so much on being really the best I could be at the craft, which is not a mistake. But the reality is if you want to up your earning potential, if you want to get to a position of authority, if you want to command you know, respect and, and dollars and all of that, you have to focus. Your focus is yes, you obviously need the underlying talent and work in the craft. You have to become essentially a consultant. Um, you control your destiny when you know enough about your own business and your own audience and your own offering that you can pitch it well, you can structure it well, you can come into businesses like you're the person with the plan as opposed to being dictated to. And so I don't know that I necessarily regret the way that it played out because I think it was a natural learning curve. But had I known earlier on the closer I get to that consultant type of title, the better I do in all regards. I think I would have made that a focus earlier on. Um, I think beyond that, you know, something that I mentioned earlier, like I've always been a people pleaser and I have easily over, you know, that I went out on my own in 2013. So we're past a decade into this now. I have easily lost six figures in revenue being accommodating, being nice, not enforcing things I could have enforced, not having difficult conversations that probably should have been had, going above and beyond because I was nervous about my own value and ability to deliver. Um, and, And so I think, you know, you don't have to be an asshole. I think, you know, nice, nice guys and gals still can win. But you do cut yourself off at the knees often when you shy away from any kind of conflict or tension or or standing up for yourself. And I got good at that as time went on. Um, these days, you know, like I think I would have folded like a lawn chair to some of the feedback that, you know, I've had to deal with over the past few years if it was happening in my freelance and consulting kind of stuff. Um, but getting used to the idea that you're not going to make everyone happy, that issues are going to arise, that you don't have to take every issue on the chin um, or give up your margin or give up your time to just to make everything right. There are other ways to do that. I, you know, I, I think I played a little too nice 
strictly on the business end. I don't regret a moment of being nice to my peers or in communities or anything like that. That pays infinite dividends. But on the business end, you know, being a people pleaser is a very expensive way to be. Yeah, uh, I, I want to. may want to come back to that idea. You were talking though about um, the pathway to becoming a consultant, and I wonder if we could go deeper on that, Joel, because I think there are a lot of people who see themselves as copywriters. They would like to get to you know the consulting type projects, but they don't see the pathway. They don't. They don't you know know the steps. So I wonder if you could sort of step through how you did it yourself and. What was it that you were doing to, you know, build your authority? What was it that you were doing to make the right connections? You know, all of the various steps that that get you from where you were to where you want to go. I mean, before we talk authority and connections, let's talk about the functional, like, how do I do consulting? Because that is a daunting question for people. And the simplest way I can try to frame it is think about everything that has to happen before you get a brief and do that stuff like that's that's really it it's you know before you get handed something to deliver against somebody has to diagnose an issue come up with a solution hash out a process for solving and, and applying that solution and then that very end piece is getting the people to actually put hands to the plow and and do the work. If you want to be a consultant, the odds are very good. You're already doing aspects of it without being aware of it. You know, like when you come into a situation, this is where things started to click for me when I realized I was starting to give advice, not just deliverables. I started to realize I have opinions and ideas and methodologies that I think people could apply to get this done. It started for me kind of innocuously thinking I should really be able to help people out with the customer research portion of that. I'm going to get good at that piece. Well, that led to the next puzzle piece, which is analyzing the data that came out of that. And that led to being able to make recommendations against that data. And that led to being able to sit in a boardroom and defend those recommendations to people who were, you know, maybe in conflict or maybe unsure of the path forward. And that ultimately culminated in, all right, now I've got this packaged up process for here's how we're going to do customer research. Here's how we're going to do analysis. Here's the report that you're going to get. Here's that's how that's going to play into your deliverables. Here's how that's going to play in beyond our engagement. And so the simplest way to repeat is think about everything that happens before the brief and start focusing on how can I play even a role in one part of that. And you'll know that you're starting to get there when you see a project or you see a site or you see a company and things spring to mind for you based on your experience now, having done the work of this is what I think you should do here and this is why. And when you can explain that why and articulate that why and come with a process for answering that why – that's how you get there. So you it's not the case that you put cart before the horse like I'm just going to go make myself an authority and then people will trust me to consult. It's for me it happened the opposite way around. It was I got very good at the craft and through that saw the opportunities for me to expand what I was doing and then because of that it led to okay, now I feel comfortable because I'm already teaching in private. I'm, I'm teaching clients, I'm advising clients. Now I can translate that to the public. And so speaking at events was massive. I still think in-person events are the like most underrated way to grow your business, period, in a consulting or small business way. Um, but you also don't have to wait for an event to come to you. Getting on podcasts, uh, getting on LinkedIn, uh, you know, like my mantra for literally almost a decade now has been solve problems in public. That is consulting. That is authority building. That is the single sentence approach I have taken for the past 10 plus years to positioning myself as someone who is known for and understood to be capable of solving a problem is just doing that over and over and over in a public forum, be it social media, be it speaking events, um, be it one-on-one you know, -on -one with, with people, be it, you know, for, for years I did free um, audits just to, to sharpen my tools. And then those transitioned into paid audits and having that as an offering, you know, that's easy to pick off a shelf, you know, productized audit offering is brilliant for venturing into the world of consulting. Um, but I think, 
yeah, don't don't get the two mixed up. Don't start with the public stuff and go, I'll figure out how to do the consulting later. That's how shysters and faux gurus emerge. Um, take what you're doing and, and bring it out to the world. Yeah, I like how simple it is just to think about, okay, if I'm giving, if I find myself giving advice to my clients frequently, that's a good sign that I might be ready for consulting. And that's a different timeline for everyone. It could be one year for someone and then it could be 10 years for the next person. And that's, that's okay. Um, I want to go back to what you shared initially. I wrote it down. Uh, you said, I was trying to figure out how to be this person in this way. You were talking about what, when you were figuring out the next steps and you, it sounds like you were having some friction as far as like, I've already hit the top of the game. Where do I go from here? You didn't say this, but it's also like people are watching. You've got a great reputation. Right. So could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Cause I, I can relate to that. Yeah. I mean it, so, uh, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I was like the best copywriter in the world, but I had gotten to I a place are, where I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, but I, I'd gotten to a place where like I was doing the thing, you know, I, w I was up there in term when I, when I would be in a room of other, other copywriters and we were talking about who we were working with and what we were able to charge. I found myself in league with the top 5% of the people in that conversation, that was a wonderful place to be, but it came with this enormous amount of pressure. It's kind of like how as a kid, everyone wants to be famous and then famous people want to retreat back into obscurity because like, this is not the deal I thought I was getting here. And, you know, like I, I've talked before, I think even on this podcast about the idea of like toxic perfectionism and how much that like ruled the roost for me. Like I needed at that point, it wasn't just I wanted, it was like mentally, I could not accept for myself putting out anything other than what I felt like this is exceptional. This is my best work to date. And while that is like a great motivator for a time, there comes a point where that is actively tripping you up and destroying your ability to deliver anything. I found myself more than ever staring at that blinking cursor thing. I have no idea what I'm doing when in theory, I know more than ever what I'm doing. I found myself falling into just patterns, the same tired ways of approaching things. My creativity went out the window because that felt like a risk. I was so worried that if I deviated from what I had done so far, or if I moved away, you know, if, if I took a really big swing and I whiffed on it, the stakes felt like, well, before I was playing in the little league and it was no big deal, if I whiff on this for this multi-billion dollar brand, well then, then I'm ruined. Right. And like, none of that is true, but I went through this whole, like when you're new to the game, the thing you fear most is critical feedback. Then you get in for me anyways, kind of this groove where you're not really getting that as much anymore. It's like, I'm killing it. I'm doing great. And then you're right back all of a sudden where you're like the thing you fear most is critical feedback because you feel like, well, they came to me for who this person, persona of me is and this level of work is and if I can't deliver that who am I and like why did they work with me and all of this so like I remember I was on retainer for this company and some of the nicest folks in the world and I remember just having to tell them like I am like I'm hitting a wall mentally and I'm sorry and I everything was coming across to them late and they were thrilled with the work but I kind of had to like I became such a critic of myself that it started to inhibit my ability to deliver. And it was at that point where I realized like, I think I'm in a place where I need to back away from the production to fall in love with something again, because I'm not loving the craft. I'm not loving the business side. I'm not loving the anxiety that's coming with this. I appreciate the money, but I can, you know, for me, I felt confident I can make money other ways. Now I've learned enough that I can do, other things. Um, and so at that point it was like, I just needed a change, you know, and I, since then I've learned a lot of really talented copywriters have gone through the same thing where they just needed to get out of production because they didn't love it anymore. They weren't enjoying it anymore. And then sure enough, everybody comes back around and ebbs and flows, right? It's still a part of who you are, but I needed to take the pressure off. I, and for me, 
ironically, the risk of running a multi-person business felt like less pressure than trying to deliver continually at this, you know, uh, I'll call it elite personal level. I, I just, I needed to change things. What year was that roughly? I think you know things were really coming to a head 2020, 2021, like again, right before the pandemic. Um, you know, the last full copywriting project I did, um, I'm still proud of it. They still have a bunch of the copy live was for a company called Era. It's a, it was a, a digital marketing agency out of the UK. Um, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled with the work that came out for that. And I think part of the reason why that project went so well is I was already treating it like my last hurrah. It's like, this is my swan song for consulting and freelancing for a while. Like it it gave me a definitive exit point. And so it took some of the pressure off and I'm still really pleased with the lines, you know, that, that we came up with together there. And I think it's done well for them. I was also going to ask what you'd recommend to someone who's in that stage. I mean, you, you said it helped to do something else. Um, I guess there's always an opportunity to do something else, but some people might not be able to make that pivot quite yet. Are there any other alternatives that could help them? Uh, I mean, we put so many artificial rules and barriers on ourselves. The reality is like, you don't have to, I mean, you can apply in so many different ways. I started doing that was around when I started really leaning into the audit offer because I enjoyed that more. I liked the problem solving of diagnosis where I could then pass that off to someone to do the production and run with it. You can decide in that moment, like, Hey, for a month or for six months, I'm only going to do small business websites for three grand. Like you, you can decide, right? Um, the worst thing I think you can tell yourself is that you don't have options because realistically you do. You have the years of experience and energy and effort and connections that brought you to that point. That's not worthless, right? And odds are if you have arrived at that point and, and you are delivering that kind of work, you are not just good at copy. You are not just good at content. There are, whether you realize it or not, other things that you are doing or delivering that you can lean into. Um, If you are going to continue to try to do the exact same thing in the exact same way, get a good therapist, I guess. I mean, you know, like connect with peers, find some other people who are in a similar situation and talk about what you're seeing. And if you're, nervousness is stemming from the you know fear of feedback or the fear that the work is not good enough um have friends that will evaluate it before it ever gets to the client have people who will both cheer you on and show you where you need to level up because i think part of the thing that was isolating for me in that season two is like we we have the mastermind and we've got our group of friends but everyone in that group was so busy doing their other amazing stuff. I really lost a sense of community and then the pandemic obliterated it. And so suddenly I made myself an island. I have trouble being vulnerable at the best of times, maybe more so in the past, especially when I was in that very perfectionist stage, but that just like ramped it up. And that was the enemy. Like when you're in your own head, your only choices are to either switch what you're doing or get out of your head in in some other way by taking that work or that stress or those questions to other people who kind of get it. Um, And that's the interesting thing too, is like from the outside looking in the people that you admire in the space, have it all figured out and they're doing great and they're either crushing it. I promise you that they're all going through (laughs) their own, you know, waves and tribulations of, of, uh, am I even good at this? You know? Yeah, it'd be nice if if there was a secret code for those who you know act like we've got it all figured out in some ways. Like- and actually, yeah, ha- would be <laughs> us having figured it all out. So, Joel, as as I've watched you over, I mean, we've known each other now for seven or eight years, um, and I've watched you literally build two different kinds of businesses. One as a copywriter, I suppose 
even, you know, stretching back, you know, as an SEO consultant before that, but as a, a copywriter who really gets to the top of his game, you've built this agency, this case study buddy agency that again, feels at least from the outside, like the, you have gotten to the top of your game. Um, is there a preference between the kinds of business? Like if, you know, if you, if you said, okay, we've lost, and we kind of asked this question before, but you've lost everything. Would you want to go back to being more of a copywriter? Would you want to build a product product company of some kind? Like what, what are the, the, I, I, this is a, a really terrible way to ask the question, I guess, but you know, how, how would you compare those options and what would you choose knowing what you know from doing both? There's some really important things I've learned that would inform that decision. I think number one, the season of your life matters enormously. Like had you asked me this question in my 20s, I still would have gone back to the individual business because the freedom that allowed me to travel and experience life in my 20s and not be accountable to other people, um, the ease of cash Honestly, when you don't have overhead, when it is just you, when the only person you have to look out for is yourself, um, that's very attractive. And even now, right, if, if, I, if, if things were to close down tomorrow, I think there is a safety and a confidence that comes in knowing I can do it on my own. Um, and, and that's very attractive. Like the, the honest truth is if I really believe if you want to make the most near term money possible with the least amount of anxiety, consulting is the way to do it because you're not, you're not worried about building a team and building out other processes. You have complete control over everything, what you say goes. Um, and, and so that's still, it still remains very attractive. I think the difference for me now is it comes down to aspirations. Like part of what I wouldn't trade at all about the multi-person business side of things is like, we have an incredible team. Um, the people that I get to work with and learn from and be humbled by and argue with and, you know, all of that. Um, there's a real community element to, a business and growing something bigger than yourself. And it's not, I make less now than I did consulting by a lot, a lot. Like in my, I have no problem you know, talking numbers. This is not a flex, but like in my best years of consulting, I brought in, you know, about 300,000 Canadian. So USD helped me out a bit. Um, with Probably what I would call like serious a year, something like that. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, like I don't, I do not bring anything remotely close to that home right now. In fact, I'm grateful I had such fat years on the business casual side because it's allowed for some lean and challenging years on the case study buddy side of things, right? When, when things really cooled off. 2022, um, November, October in the B2B world, like having that to, to know was there was huge. But the people aspect of growing a business, the, the opportunity for legacy, and honestly, just like, I think the hardest thing for me right now is I don't really view myself as a copywriter anymore because there's so much that I have learned outside of that craft, I can still do it. I'm still very confident. I could sharpen my knives and go back and be an assassin in that space. But I think I know more now. I can do more now. I've taken on, in my view, harder challenges now and more diverse, you know, I've solved more diverse problems. And so for me, if I'm going to go into anything consulting, it's not going to be as a writer. Uh, if I'm going to build something new, it's it's a, a more linear application of the things I'm learning and growing and doing now. I feel like I can do and be more. I, I feel like if I was ever going to go in-house, I could legitimately be in, in the C-suite or I could be in a founding partner's environment. And so I think for me these days, the, the potential rewards of a multi-person business outstrip kind of the flexibility of the consultancy. But I'll tell you, if times ever got tough, man, am I glad that I could go elbows out and provide that's it's a wonderful thing to know you can fall back on 
Yeah, I think that's what allows us to take risks as copywriters and consultants. It's like we can, we have that confidence that we can go back to it at any time if we need it, um, which is really nice. So you mentioned cooling off and, you know, I think a lot of copywriters can relate to that phrase over the last year, especially 2023, was difficult for a lot of writers. So how did you deal with it mindset wise? Like how do you stay strong mentally, emotionally when, um, you know, the business turns and it's out of your control in some ways. I know we always control something. How did you deal with it? Mean, let's talk let's talk about the headwinds facing copywriters now, especially if you're in the B2B space. I think first, the one everyone, you know, the big elephant in the room is AI. And I don't care who you are, if you're not concerned about the impact of AI on the way that you do things, you are not paying attention. It took us like, 40, 40 minutes to mention it. So I'm proud of us. We lasted yes, three minutes. Uh, but when some of the sharpest tools in the shed are concerned and talking about it, if you're like, nah, this will blow over. Like you are an ostrich, like you are an ostrich. Um, so, okay. There's this whole AI giant looming in the corner. Then there's the economic conditions and inflation and companies cutting spend. And that rocked through end of 2022, all the way through 2023. And we're still now seeing layoffs into 2024. Now that stuff does end. It doesn't go on forever. Um, And you can weather that storm very differently depending on your situation. If you're a consultant, you have, or a copywriter, you can be very scrappy. You can change on a dime. You can redefine your offering. You can go after a new vertical. You can move very fast. The position that I found myself in is we're not even a big company, but we can't overnight pivot and be like, we're now case study plus buddy. We have, you know, like it's not... It's not a thing. Yeah. Um, And so, well, how do you weather it? How do you come out? I think the first thing is like um, something I get right a lot and something I struggle with very much still, and that's mindset. So like an area I got that right is from the moment I first really mucked around with chat GPT, my posture towards it has been like, I need to be curious about this, informed and equipped not terrified. And that has served me really, really well because you can shake your fist at the clouds and humans are always going to be the best. And so like you are an ostrich, like you are not paying attention because AI doesn't have to steal your job to change your job or change the perception of your job or change the process behind your job. And so approaching that with an air of curiosity and what if, as opposed to just shutting down, um, you know, in the early stages, like I remember chats with Leanna Patch and just being terrified at, you know, seeing some of the things come out as being like, holy cow, like, and we're, we're in the earliest iterations of this and both of us have chosen curiosity and both of us are better for it. So, so I think that's one thing is being curious about the potential as opposed to being terrified at the, um, you know, the, the, I guess the potential, (laughs) um, you choose, you choose your posture there. Um, I think, you know, quite honestly, the navigating the, the slowdown has meant making harder and new decisions and trying to have a mindset of this isn't growth financially, but this is growth. Personally, I am learning and proving to myself that I can do hard things. It is never fun. I don't care, uh, how, who you are, unless you're some kind of psychopath, it's never fun having to go to people and telling them we don't have enough work. We need to let you go. That's never a fun conversation. Um, it's one I've I've had to have. Um, it is never a fun conversation getting on a call with a client and all of a sudden a relationship that was based on value is now being boiled down to a price point and that both neither side really has a say. Um, and so some of the lessons I've taken away from this are things like always have more than one point of contact in a company <laughs> that knows you well. Um, cause the number of people that got let go that were our primary people. Uh, and then we had no voice in that conversation was harsh. Um, really hurt us. Um, I think looking for ways you can be flexible, um, without, you know, like what are your unbendable, rules and where can you adapt for a season. Um, I think that really matters. 
I think a bias toward action against uh, you don't want to overreact, but if you hold on too long um, in hopes, well, maybe it'll turn around, maybe it'll turn around, maybe it'll turn around. Like, no, like act. Um, it's hard to make calls. Like we have to let someone go or we need to change the model, but the longer you sit on it and stew on it, the more difficult it it gets to ever make that call till, till you're really painted into a corner. And then I think the other really hard lesson that I learned and continue to learn is we grew so much, so much under our own steam, word of mouth. We had it made in the shade in terms of being one of only a small handful of competitors in the space. And so we had good name recognition. I had a good you know, authority in the market. You feel like that stuff is going to fill your boots forever. It is not. And so one of the regrets I have is not really investing in a good sales and marketing engine in the fat times because boy, do you really, you know, it's, it's much harder to stand that stuff up in the lean times. Um, and so, you know, have, I've been humbled quite a bit by the reality of it does not matter how strong your market position is today, how much brand name equity you carry, how much authority you wield on social, like when the rubber really hits the road and times get really tough, that is not going to carry you. And again, I'm grateful for that lesson because for example, like it got me doing things that I had never, never thought we'd be doing cold outreach. I was like, like, no way. Like, I'm never going to touch that. I'm probably on the record being like, I'm never going to cold pitch my life. And you can just build a business. Everyone comes to you. You can. That's not going to last for us. So we got into cold email, for example. That was a humbling experience. And to see it actually work was another humbling experience. Because like, yeah, here's a massive bias I had that like, I was wrong. Um, and so that I'll close this rambling thought off with that. Like, Getting to a place in your career, some people it comes really easy. For me, it did not. Where you're okay being wrong, pretty important. Because um, the longer you you stay doggedly committed to your current perception of things, the more screwed you can find yourself. So, Joel, I've noticed over maybe it's the last four or five months, maybe it's been going on longer. You're doing some fun things with AI and image and your own personal brand. Uh, you know, so. I'm to the point now where if I see a black and red checkered shirt, a bald head and glasses, uh, I know it's from you, regardless of whether it's on a Muppet or it's in a stained glass or something else. So tell us your, just what are you doing with that? What are the tools that you're using and why? Why are you putting your image uh, in, the, in the Twitter sphere or in LinkedIn so much? Yeah, I always wanted to be good at art. Like I always wanted to be good at drawing. I always wanted to be good at like sculpture. My wife would say I give up too quickly. What I have is like, I have what I think is good taste. Like I know something's cool when I see it, but if you leave it to me to like visually create that thing, I admire designers so much because their brains are so deconstructive. They can like take something that they see the end point of, break it down to its core elements and then rebuild it. Like what a skill set. I don't Same. don't yeah. have that visually. Um, so knowing that about me, the thing that always held me back was the skill set, not the ideas, not the, you know, and I didn't have time to cultivate it. And so one of the first things I got really interested in with AI was this whole incredible phenomenon of like, being able to generate a visual just from text to me that is still like magic like for the religious folks in the room the whole notion of like god spoke it into existence and there it was like to me this is like on a microcosm level like the closest thing you're gonna get to like not that we're mini gods or anything but like to me that's just incredible it's mind-boggling that that's possible and so i started mucking around with it. i was like well what's the potential i was curious what can i create and I started playing around originally with mid journey and I was pretty impressed by the crazy things that would come out. And it was all kind of for a laugh. I was like mostly creating stuff that was like outlandish or like characters for my kids. And then I needed, you know, I, I always wanted to have visuals for all my posts on LinkedIn because it's like free real estate. Like you might as well use it. It's there. It can draw eyeballs. 
So originally, if you look back at my post, you're going to see this weird hodgepodge of like there's a Muppet funeral and then there's like monsters chasing people through the world. I was just searching for like what what can I do here and what grabs – like what works? And then I got curious. I, I started to see you know other people on LinkedIn have these branded elements like Randley John. Like he has like for his podcast this pixel. You know it's him the minute you see that thing. Um for the guys at Refine Labs, you know the aesthetic of their videos and that setup the minute you see it. I was like, can I recreate that feeling, but with AI? Like, can I build a personal brand out of AI generated imagery? And I needed to find, I was like, the problem that I have, I'm not, number one, I'm not good at this. Like, I'm not a prompt engineer that I can like do weightings and like little pro, like I, I needed the most brain dead simple thing. And then Coincidentally, Dolly within ChatGPT rolled out and it blew my mind because for the first like mid journey, you still had to treat like you were programming something. Dolly was like, I could speak plain English and I could get something cool and then I could refine it and I could get something great. And that was like the catalyst. I'm like, okay, I need some consistent elements. I can't consistently generate my own face. Thankfully, I'm like a pretty generic white bald guy. So that works to my advantage. But it's like, what repeatable elements could I bring into this? And that's what I settled on is, Okay, I've got this red plaid shirt that I've given talks in. I'm always going to be wearing black square glasses or something close to it. And I'm always going to be bald. Let's bring those things in. And let's. my thought was, I'm not going to go for photorealism. I'm going to go for styles where there is, there's like a trick of the art that makes it believable that it's me. Whether that's anime, claymation, a stuffy, like there's this acceptability factor of like, yeah, that could be Joel. And like do that enough. I thought maybe maybe people start to write. So I started testing it out. It took two weeks for people to notice. That's it. After 14 days of consistently posting that, people should say, I love the, like, I tune in for the images and then I read the post. I'm like, that that's wild to me. Um, so I've fallen off a little bit with keeping that up. But once I had, like, established it as, like, a person, then I now had the bandwidth where I could show, like, all white business shirts and then a red and plaid shirt hanging in the middle and people oh. who've been following me would make the connection like that's I get like what he's doing there or similarly I could just take the base elements like it started full and then I started to take pieces away until it was just the shirt just the glasses now you know I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm curious if I can just have plaid and see if it still connects so it's been this whole experiment that's been really fun and AI has been a really cool tool for it because while I'll never be able to draw or make art like that and I have so much respect for the artists and we can get into the ethics of like who I'm technically stealing from as I do this but that was the that was the experiment and if you take nothing else away from that if you do something consistently 14 times in public people will start associating it with you like it doesn't take much it really doesn't it's such a great idea because I've messed around with so many different images using AI, but I didn't think about, we've branded it for campaigns, but I've never branded it around my own identity. And that's such a great way to show up. So I'm going to swipe that and experiment. Yeah, Rob, I feel I've, like you I've, I've, I've tried it, to swipe it. Like I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I've got the blue shirt, which I, you know, the blue collared shirt. Yeah. I also have black glasses that I wear at least when I'm on camera. But uh, I'm struggling with the, you know, I'm, I don't have the bald head. So the gray hair thing. You have short gray hair. When I, when I play around with Mid Journey, though, it keeps making me want to be Superman. And when I do it in <laughs> Dolly, I, it always gives me a beard. And it, it doesn't, you know, it's, I'm just like, because I keep you pushing should back. Have a like, beard. You should grow your beard. May, maybe so. So I'm still in the learning stages, Joel, but uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, when people start to recognize whatever it is that I come up with. You need Converse sneakers, Rob. You need the sneakers. Maybe it's in the there. Con- yeah. Maybe it's the sneakers. Yeah. All right. So I want to go into burnout because I don't want to not talk about that. And I sure. <laughs> going way back, like way back, you know, you had your trip and you can tell me which year to New Zealand. You took right. time away. And, um, I believe that was to just, you know, deal with some burnout and just focus more on life. I'm wondering how you deal with burnout these days, considering that you have this significantly larger company with all these employees that we've talked about. You have three kids now, that's a change from last episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> so are there any habits, anything you can share with us that may help us deal with burnout? Yeah. So that trip happened and that, you know, I, I 
continued to work a little bit through that period, but that was really, yeah, a moment of acknowledgement that just there's other things I want to do with life. I've worked really hard. I've earned the opportunity to like be fully remote and to take advantage of this. Um, and so we did that. Um, I think burnout shows up in different ways for different people and recognizing how it's showing up in you becomes really, really critical because for some people it's overt. They feel it. They're tired. They're, you know, it's, it's this cloud. Um, I think one of the toughest lessons for me is realizing, especially with like a growing family, that burnout would come out as anger at times. And I'm not, you know, I never considered myself an angry person till I found myself in situations where I'm like, my response to what's happening in this situation is so disproportionate to the situation. And it it's not acceptable. Like I'm not okay with being this person right now. Um, and so I think I don't have the novelty of just like dropping everything and going to New Zealand. Like you said, I've got a growing family. I've got a company that's now uh, reliant on, you know, not solely on me, but like I have a, a critical role to play. Um, and so it, it took a lot of mindset changes for me. I grew up pretty not like mocking of, but just like never felt like I would be the kind of person to get counseling. It's like, that's nah, not really for me. I invested in it because I, you know, I got to the point where I'm just like, I have friends, I have community to some degree, but I need somewhere to take this stuff. Um, and so that was, you know, one of the things that I invested in that I think honestly, everybody, you know, it's the cliche, but everybody should be in counseling at some point in, in their lives. So I, I think looking at, you know, what resources are available to me in that way. Um, I think transparently, you know, burnout and stress and anxiety, it's a really true to life thing right now. Like this is a very stressful period in the business. Um, some days I deal with it great. Some days I don't, I think I'm more aware as I get older. Uh, I'm 36. I'm not ancient, you know, but like the, I'm very aware of the mind body connection at this point, um, where getting out and moving, prioritizing exercise, prioritizing walking. I started an adventure club with my kids to get us. We have a little ravine across from our place and we go try to spot animals down there. We hardly ever see anything, but we're still waiting on the day that we, we, there have been deer and stuff. So they, they do exist. Um, I think my kids are starting to think I'm just tricking them, but, um, you know, like finding little ways to involve those around you in the way you cope with that, but in a healthy way. Um, not yelling at my kids, but Adventure Club is like a much better manifestation of like, hey, I need to get out and I need to just not not do this thing. Um, I think another key component to all of this is like I'm married now and my burnout affects my spouse. Like so learning to have again, I I'm not great or haven't historically been great at being vulnerable or asking for help. And I think just fostering that dynamic with Courtney and being able to say, I'm not doing great. This is not a good day for me. I am, my headspace is off. Can we, can we team up today? And like, you know, you can imagine with three kids and her full-time momming, she has her own days of well-earned burnout. Um, so, so nurturing that dynamic and, and being able to have conversations there, I think is really important. Then, you know, coming full circle, I kind of alluded to this, but like community is such a, big thing for years I tried to lone wolf it then through the pandemic a lot of the community I had got obliterated now um you know seeking that out when you're younger things like going out to a local marketing drink so you know event just kind of feels like networking um these days it feels a lot like therapy <laughs> because you're meeting with people and you're getting out of your day-to-day -day and you're commiserating and you're talking and even if you're not drinking anything or you're just there for the people which is largely where i'm at these days um there's something to be said for just like changing your environment changing your headspace being amongst others who are going through the same thing and having those conversations and realizing like it's not the end of the world it's not just you um you know that kind of thing so it's still a struggle um i think my anxiety and my blood pressure are probably both higher than they've ever been but finding healthier ways to navigate that uh is something i'm you know, I'm committed to because I, I have people depending on me both in the business and outside of it. So 
it's important. My question really is, okay, Joel, so what is next for you? You know, what are you working on? I know um, case study buddy, still a thing and still a, a huge part of your life. Um, but uh, where else is your brain going? Yeah, I mean, I'm in a season where, um, you know, like I said, I, I alluded to like, it's it's a tough, tough market for everybody. If you're on the outside looking at case study buddy, the impression would be only that they're you know, I hope people feel like we're a market leader, like we're doing great work, but that can be true and you can still be struggling. Um, and so you know, part of my um, duty, obligation and drive is to put case study buddy, you know, on a, on a great path and, and um, keep it going. You know, I, I don't have imminent plans to leave the company or anything like that, but I think both Jen and I are, are pretty open about the fact that we don't, it's not what we're going to do forever, at least not the only thing um, we're going to do. I think, you know, long-term um, there's other things that I want to explore. Uh, I've cultivated this set of skills now over time in business building and in writing and in other areas that make me an asset to others building businesses. And so I'm still, you know, it's like the cliche, but there's still courses that I would love to publish. There's still work that I would love to do. Um, you know, I, I could see myself potentially, you know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds, but I could see myself working nicely with others who want to build. And, you know, I think the part of the business building that I really love most is the beginning, laying the foundation, getting things going. Um, I could see myself in a, in a place where I'm partnering with some folks to build up businesses and brands and get them momentum. I think that's the part that's most exciting for me. Um, but I, you know, I, I remain open to anything really, you know, there's still parts of consulting that excite me. There's still parts of copy that excite me. And while I don't think I'll ever, I mean, knock on wood, you, you never say never. Well, I don't think I'll ever find myself in a full-time copywriting role ever again. Um, I still, I still want to write for fun. I still want to be part of crafting that messaging. I still want to take, you know, the tools I've earned through that period and apply them in different ways. So, um, yeah, I don't know what's next, but I, I think where I'm at these days, where my head is at is more, I like to build brands. I like to build companies. If I could be like the bald, less attractive Ryan Reynolds and be out there helping <laughs> get, get things going. Yeah. Um, I think I'd have a lot of fun with that. And that, I think that's something new is this desire in the future to prioritize, not just what's profitable, but also what's fun. Like you get to live once and you don't even know how long you get to do that. So you might as well enjoy it. Well, well, you can. The next image I'm looking forward to seeing you post in LinkedIn is going to be the Joel Klepke Deadpool crossover. <laughs> yeah, he'll be in plaid. It'll be a plaid suit. I'll have to find a creative way to get past the filters on that one, but I'll give it a go. All right. So as we wrap, um, we've talked, you know, touched on AI, and I'd love to hear from you your perspective on the future of copywriting in terms of, I guess, in terms of thinking about what we should do, what we should be prepared for from your perspective, and maybe what we should consider more than what we have. Yeah, my perspective on this is going to be different from others. So don't Great. just listen to me. I am firmly in the camp that we are early days on all of this, that it's only going to get better that the barrier to entry is only going to get lower and that the output is only going to get stronger. Um, you still need people to think. You still need people to decide. You still need people with experience and taste to know what is good and know what may perform. But the mechanical writing bit as a competitive advantage is only going to erode more and more and more. And while you can despair about that, and I certainly went through my own period of being like, oh, but I spent so much time and energy learning, choosing to approach it through a lens of curiosity and how can this accelerate what I'm doing? How can I use it to iterate? How can I use it as an extension of who I am and what makes me a great writer as opposed to calling it the death of my career? Like I think what's so interesting is people who get really good at writing so many of them want to start teams and agencies. And what are you doing when you do that? You're outsourcing the product side of it, right? Like you are assuming a strategy role. Well, it, what difference is it if the 
person doing the writing is a person or a machine. So I'm in the camp kind of in the same territory with like the Stefan Georgies of the world where it's like, I think we are going to get to a point that the mechanics part of it, it's not an advantage. It's accessible to everyone. I think in many ways we're already there. Um, I continue to be astounded, but I, in the same breath, I think the craft of copywriting is safe. I, I think it takes skill and talent and passion and devotion to understand why things work and why something might work. I think we continue to be surprised by what lands and there's still this whole human psychology to it. There's still this whole very intriguing, like what is it that gets a beating heart to respond to a written word that I think there is still so much of a playground there to be explored that just because AI might be helping accelerate the actual production doesn't mean that the craft is over or the craft is dead. I think the more you can be acting like a consultant and investing yourself in the curiosity of why does this work, the what if, um, the more you treat it like a playground and not a minefield, I think the, the more exciting, you know, life gets because realistically if you're writing ads for google you know like you need coffee breaks and sleep and ai doesn't it can churn out a thousand ideas and while 998 of them will be awful two of them will be great it just needs a tiny margin so yeah, I I still think it's worth getting into the field. I still think it's worth cultivating curiosity. I still think it's worth honing the craft so that you can be someone who directs the next things to come. That's where I sit. Others will disagree. They think we're reaching the pinnacle of what AI can achieve on the written word and that there's not that much further that realistically it can go. I don't know anything about the technical aspects of that. All I know is that today... I can ask a machine to give me a picture of a bald guy wearing glasses, <laughs> riding a moose, and it can do that. And if it can do that now, like I don't, I can't even imagine what's possible in ten years. I'm not going to write anything off. That's the end of our interview with Jill Kletke. The first time that he was on the podcast, Jill gave us some advice that still resonates with me today. He talked about how if you can solve real problems for your clients, you don't need to start out charging beginner rates, even if you're just starting out in business. The value that you create is in the solutions that you bring to the table, not the years of experience that you have. Now, those are my words, not Joel's, but that was the message that he shared, and you should definitely check out that episode. It was number 21 in your podcast feed. It's worth emphasizing one or two other things from today's interview that stood out, at least they stood out to me. Talking about hiring, Joel said that you can do everything right in the hiring process and it will still not work out. This is such an important lesson and unfortunately, we all seem to need to learn it on our own. Even when we hear others say it, we almost always have to go through the process to internalize it. It's so hard to just hear it and apply it. Good people are not always a good fit. They're almost certainly a good fit in other situations, though. And when you part with them, you give them the opportunity to find that better fit. Trying to be nice or overly patient, giving extra chances, that just prolongs the decision and it doesn't make it easier. In fact, it actually makes it harder to do. I also appreciate our discussion about growing your influence. That portion of this podcast is worth listening to at least twice. It's not about the audience. It's about your capability and your skills. That absolutely has to come first. We've all seen the 22-year-old life coach dispensing advice that comes across as ridiculous to anyone with a decade or two of experience, or the marketers and copywriters who, once they have a few clients, they immediately create a course that supposedly teaches others how to mimic their success. Just because you've done it once doesn't mean that you can do it again and again, especially as situations change or as clients change. Spend a few years perfecting your craft, learning how to diagnose big problems for a variety of clients and creating solutions for them and doing it over and over enough that it becomes secondhand. Then go out and tell the world. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you can't share your journey or that you must wait until you're a credentialed expert before you can develop a social presence or speak on stage or do any of those things to build your authority. Of course, you can do that stuff too. But the emphasis is on building your expertise and your capabilities, becoming the expert before you say you're the, the expert. 
Okay, thanks to Joel for joining us to chat about his business and some of the challenges that he's worked to overcome over the last couple of years. If you want to connect with Joel, the best way to do that is on LinkedIn. You can also find him on Twitter where he posts more fun and experimental stuff. He's definitely worth the follow there. And if you want to see what he's created at Case Study Buddy or want to learn more about writing case studies, go to casestudybuddy.com where there are a ton of resources to get you started. Just a quick reminder that the Copywriter Underground is the best place to find the resources and coaching you need to grow your copywriting business. You can learn more at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show to leave a review. And don't miss our other podcast at AIforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. You can also watch on YouTube and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money.